This New America NYC event took place on November 14th, 2016, and was a conversation following the screening with Vice of the documentary Terror, and features Sarush Alvi, founder Vice, and Peter Bergen, Vice President and Director, International Security Program, New America. If I understand the argument that you're making in the film, perhaps, uh, ISIS is really not the problem. It's a symptom of other problems. Um, it's just, and so what are those problems? Um, we have a new president who's going to come into office. Uh, will he be able to ameliorate any of these problems, or are they just, are they too difficult, or is he the wrong person? Um, what does is, what is the next several years look like? That's a, a very good question, um, Peter. So this was uh, the last part of a five-part series. Part one was Al-Qaeda, uh, and then we focus on Al-Shabaab in part two, and the Taliban part four is Boko Haram, and then we end with this one. And so I was trying to you know, understand the kind of connective tissue between these groups, some of the motivating uh, factors that drive them. I think when I embarked on making this series, I had a cursory understanding of the history behind these groups. And when we started digging deeper, um, you know, you really see the impact that uh, Western policies, their own governments in their countries, and U.S. foreign policy, the impact it has on the kind of evolution of these groups. And and yes, it is. Kind of uh, the ending's a bit of a bummer. I apologize for that of, of that episode, but I, I worry about what's going to happen next when the next president takes over. And you know, we have this four-year, eight-year kind of administration cycle that cycles in and cycles out. So, and and instead of you know, post 9/11, the war on terror started. Um, it, we're getting. It feels to me that we're getting further away from uh, resolving the issue, and what, what, and the what world is, is becoming more what binary. Is, minute, but what is the issue? Well, there is um, you know, a great sense. The, the, what I learned from when I sat. So I was also trying to sit down with the different groups over the course of of the series. We didn't sit down with ISIS; they just shot at us, but. I sat down with Boko Haram and, and with Al-Qaeda in Yemen um, and the Taliban, and they um, feel very aggrieved that there's a great, they have a great sense of injustice. Um, and there's a lot of anger and a lot of pain. And, um, and it's not, um, <clears throat> that's their perspective. I'm by no means, uh, you know, trying to be an apologist for them. But they, if you, you know, it, so the, the issue, is um, they, they feel just incredibly um, beat down generation after generation. By, by whom? Well, the... Obviously, it depends on... It depends on, on the country. It depends on, on the policies. Um, the, they're mad at America. They're very mad at... Um, uh, you know, if you look at the, the effects that drone strikes have had in Pakistan, Somalia, Yemen, they have, are just radicalizing the region and giving a recruiting tool for the groups. Um, 
So I set out to get a deeper understanding, and I thought I would come up with a lot of answers to questions. I didn't necessarily yeah. get those answers. Um, you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's a complicated. Um, each one of these groups have these deep histories, um, and I wasn't necessarily setting out to do the history channel version of what Vice normally does, but that's kind of what came out. Uh, but I'm, I'm happy I did, because it's, it's interesting to see the, that I guess, you know, a Frankenstein has been created on some level. I mean, there's no, there's no argument, I think, that the original sin for, with Al-Qaeda in Iraq is our invasion. Um, the, uh, you know, of course, you know, Saddam was a, an appalling dictator and many Iraqis were quite happy that he left. Um, but I, I thought your interest, your, your interview with uh, Paul Bremer was interesting because he didn't seem to be, first of all, was he easy to get as an interview? Because, I mean, presumably he knows what the questions are going to be. Uh, and secondly, he didn't seem to be that reflective uh, that maybe, you know, some of the decisions that he either authorized or, or made himself, it's never been very clear because everybody, no one's taken responsibility for the, I was, I got rid of the Iraqi army or I was in charge of debathification, but clearly he's the guy who was in charge. So he didn't seem to be particularly reflective in the film. Was he reflective? No, no, not at all. He was um, um, not making any apologies. I, I was actually surprised that he agreed to do the interview. Yeah, why did he, why did he agree? Um, I think because he wants to take every opportunity um, to clear his name, because his name has been sullied. So this, you were not Errol Morris here, where you kind of, he suddenly said, look, I was completely wrong. You know, I regret every decision I made. He, 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 he didn't, uh, he was not like McNamara at the end of his life in, with Errol Morris. No, and I, but I think, you know, I didn't come at him very aggressively, but I think he kind of, in that interview, buried himself on some level. Yeah. Um, and my, my producer, David, is here, and you set up the interview. I'm, was it actually hard to set up? Yeah. Like, okay, Paul Bremer wants to meet, great. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you think he was more inclined to do it because it was Vice, or he didn't, he didn't was he aware of Vice? I mean, he doesn't seem like a typical Vice viewer. Um, I, I think he'd been doing a lot of press. I think he had maybe made the decision. We put in the request, he said yes, and, and we needed to talk to him. I'm, yeah. I'm happy he agreed to it. And honestly, I feel a little bad uh, because he was very nice, invited, me, invited us into his house, right. um, and had all the time in the world to talk about these things. Um, but ultimately, he comes off as the villain in this Doc, he as the man who broke Iraq on some yeah. level, post 9-11. Well, Saddam broke Iraq in a lot of ways too. I mean, it, it is a, it's, it's not simply an American. Absolutely. But, um, yeah, I, I mean, I guess that it's, there's so much correlation or causality. Yeah. Um, Let's do the thought experiment where the United States had not invaded Iraq. Can we, can we do the, the experiment where we change the timeline and Al Gore actually won? 
Yeah, I mean, so, well, but that, that okay, but but let's let's say, let's say that's the sort of version of the same question, yeah. which is, yeah, sure. if the United States had not invaded Iraq, presumably there would have been some kind of Arab Spring-like movement inside Iraq, as it was in Syria. So, I've I've been to Iraq three times, and the second time I went, um, it was as I told you before uh, the screening, it was like the calm before the storm. It was 2012. And my Iraqi friends who were there said, we can't believe we're saying this, but we missed the days when Saddam Hussein was in power. Mm. Um, and that was pretty shocking to hear. By the way, your, your wife is here, right? Yes, she is. Is, she, is this the first, she's seen this film many times? or No, she hasn't. She's seen snippets and rough cuts. Okay, well, I mean, um, so to, to walk us through how you, uh, you produce this in terms of, you know, getting to these very dangerous situations, um, they're very unpredictable. Even if you have people you, you know that are taking them in, they can make wrong decisions. Uh, whether that's in Somalia or Afghanistan or Iraq. So t t how do you, what, how do you produce these films? Um, well, we, you know, we, we didn't go to, to school for it. We, the, the first time we went to Baghdad in 2006, that was my first time in some kind of a unstable place or a crisis and conflict zone. And I'm not a active combat zone reporter. That getting shot at scene was, was absolutely terrifying for me. That was supposed to be a, a dog and pony show on some level. Uh, a Japanese and a French crew had been to the exact same place earlier in the week and it was totally calm. And, um, I, I always like to say that I'm, I'm better with post-conflict zones. <laughs> um, but we, we learned over the years that if you have good people on the ground, uh, locals to work with, they will, um, they will keep you alive and they will help facilitate the story. And we had a pair of brothers who were fantastic, who we were closely with. Um, we always go pretty lean in the field. It was mm. myself, my producer, and two shooters. Um, That's lean? Yeah, I mean, it, well, it used to be just yeah. me and one other person. So but two shooters. Two shooters, yeah. Two shooters. Um, you could definitely go leaner. Yeah. I mean, Ben Anderson sitting out there, yeah. he goes really lean. He goes himself in one, one shooter. And I guess he used to be leaner when it was just him with a handicap, right? So, um, and over the years, we went the other way. We ended up, I remember being in, in Afghanistan and, uh, and CNN landed at the same time. They were covering the elections and it was just so much equipment and gear. And we kind of went in that direction for a while as well. We're like, our footprint on the ground is getting so much bigger. This is the exact opposite of how we learned how to do this and yeah. so we're now going back to let's try going back to one camera and Yemen when I did the Al-Qaeda episode that was just one shooter mm. um, and uh, with our fixer on the ground and the producer so there was a three-person crew. When so, were you in Yemen? Uh, earlier this year uh, that was in I think March. And? It was it was amazing I mean we went uh, we'd been in touch with Al-Qaeda they How did you do that? Um, we had a, a local there who um, he wanted to work. He'd never worked as, as a fixer before, and he had contacts. His, you know, some of his family members were ended up joining Al Qaeda and had wow. a, a close relationship with them. 
And so he set it up and they guaranteed us safe passage and said they wanted to speak to Western media and get their message out. They felt that ISIS had really been bad for their own image and they wanted to talk about how they are becoming more of a political actor, how they are working with the community um, and doing good things and filling the vacuum that exists there. Um, like the Al-Qaeda uh, sewage officer and the Al-Qaeda uh, teacher and what was... Spraying for mosquitoes. Yeah. Literally. And uh, were you concerned that the, I mean, we've had colleagues who've, you know, tried to interview the Taliban and then have become prisoners. So were you, were you concerned in these instances when you're talking directly to them, whether it's the Taliban or Al-Qaeda in Yemen, uh, you know, that this could be a setup? Yes, absolutely. Um, and we, we vetted it, it, we vetted it to the best of our abilities. Um, and Al-Qaeda gave their, um, their guarantee to our, our fixer there. And before, and once we, we had to take an 18-hour boat ride from Djibouti in this rickety boat to get there uh, because the airport had shut down um, because they'd found a, a bomb and right before we were supposed to go. So we took this crazy boat ride in and once we got there, the fighting between Al-Qaeda and the Houthis had had kind of ended at that point, but they were fighting with the local Yemeni government at that point. And they said, actually, you know what? We, we don't have the time to meet you guys. And we said, okay, well, we came all this way. Eventually they agreed to meet and he, our fixer would not take us until he got this kind of, you know, it's, it's kind of like Pashtun while in, in Afghanistan in a way, this kind of, I, my word is bond. He said, if they give this to me, then we'll be safe. And they did. And we, we took a leap of faith and, and we met them. And do, we, they, do they regard you as, you're Canadian, right? Yeah. Do they, do they care if you're American, Canadian, Muslim, non-Muslim? And what do they, was that, does that make any difference when you're dealing with these groups? We definitely told them that I was uh, a Canadian of, you know, Pakistani Muslim background yeah. uh, and that I was interested in, in talking to them. Um, I'm not sure if that helped us get that interview or not. It could have been any Western crew that was there and they might have met them. Um, we were the ones who happened to go there and it was, you know, we were the only uh, Western crew in Aden at the time. Um, For understandable so, reasons. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so and then, you know, you, you brought up my wife. She's been, um, she also vetted the entire shoot. She <laughs> talked to my, uh, my producer. She wanted the whole itinerary. Um, and, and she was a real champ about it um, and encouraged me to do it because she thought it was an important story as well. Yeah. And it's her birthday today, by the Happy way. Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> she's being a really good sport. I was like, Peter, Peter could only meet on Monday. And she's like, okay, it's fine. <laughs> so. Well, um, so getting back to the big picture for a minute, um, it's, it seems to me that there are five very big... Um, historical currents. If we had this conversation five years ago, death of bin Laden, Arab Spring, it would be a different conversation. But now, there are five very big currents. The first is a, a, a Sunni-Shia regional civil war, which is you see in Yemen, you see in Iraq and Syria and other places, funded by Iran and the Gulf states, which have deep pockets. A collapse of Arab governance from Libya to Yemen. Uh, a huge refugee outflow, as you said in the film, to Europe. 
the alienation of Muslims in Europe. And basically, if you're a Pakistani in Britain or pick your European country, it's not a great place to be usually. And finally, the rise of European proto-fascist parties who are all celebrating um, the um, Marine Le Pen is very excited about the Donald Trump election. Um, so if you take those five things together and you, and you, you know, uh, and, you, and ISIS is sort of a symptom of these, whether in Europe or in the Middle East, um, you're actually looking at, you know, uh, you or somebody you designate five years from now is going to be making a film that it, about a group that isn't called ISIS, but it's going to be called something, I think. Uh, that, that continue, because unless there's a political accommodation in Iraq, where the Sunnis actually get a say, uh, unless there's the end of the Syrian civil war, with the likelihood of which is very, very unlikely anytime soon. So you were just in Mosul, I think, a week ago? Or, uh, yeah, a little over a week A couple ago. weeks just ago. Just outside Mosul, yeah. And, and from what you've seen, you feel like ISIS is going to... I mean, they're, 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 or lose yeah, they're, this yeah, I mean, their their days in Mosul are, are numbered. numbered. I mean, yeah, they're going to fight. I mean, but the, you know, one thing is, the politics around the attack were very well organized. I mean, it really is the Iraqi army. It's not some yeah. Shia militia yeah. like that you were with. It's uh, the Kurds are, you know, are part of it, but they're not invading the city, and so they really did manage the politics pretty well. And uh, so Mosul will fall. And then, you know, ISIS will go to other parts like Tal Afar or Kyle Kite, they're smaller places. But, you know, that, you know, since we've already run a controlled experiment of what this looks like already, because Al Qaeda in Iraq basically lost all this territory uh, in 2006 and 2007 when you were there for the first time. So, I mean, I just, I hate to be sort of a, I'm not by nature a pessimist at all. Um, but it's the, un, the, the basic historical currents aren't going, don't seem to be, I mean, is, is, there, is there evidence that the Iraqi prime minister will really let the Sunnis have as much power as they feel they deserve? I mean, there's no evidence the Syrian civil war is, is, is anything, you know, none of the key players are coming to the table. So if you, and then look at Yemen, which you were just in, I mean, this thing has been a complete fiasco. The Saudi invasion has been a total failure. Um, and and I'm just, I'm, I, I assume much the same could be said about Libya. So walk us through what the next several years look like in terms of what the likely outcomes are, at least in particular for these jihadi groups. Um, okay, well, starting with Al-Qaeda, um, I was under the impression that they were much weaker than they actually are. Um, I think maybe it's just from the way the media has covered them or portrayed them. Um, and after seeing uh, them in operation in Yemen, and also I'm told they're rising up in Afghanistan as well, um, they're kind of like the godfathers. And they're, especially the way they are becoming more of a political entity, uh, <clears throat> I feel like they're here to stay. And they are running the, the port in Mukalla. They're making a lot of money. Uh, so and, and, and they're doing very well in Syria. I mean, it shouldn't be. Yes, sorry, so, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, very strong in, in Syria. So they're sticking around. Um, and, 
you know, I covered the Taliban a lot in Pakistan over the years. Um, and, and one thing I w always noticed was this kind of what I call a cockroach effect, where the army goes into the tribal areas and stamps down on them, and then they run and they go into the, the cities, and then, uh, and then they form splinter groups or, you know, the, the TTP in Pakistan, I think the umbrella organization has 20 uh, groups underneath it. So my, my point is that in, in Iraq, with what's happening right now, I don't think that there's going to be a, a kind of, we're going to route them out, there's going to be disappearance. That Boko Haram in Nigeria, however, I feel like some crazy amnesty deal could happen there. They did it with the um, warlords in the Niger Delta before, and uh, I don't know how much longer they can sustain living in Sambisa Forest, and they still have some of the Chibok girls, and maybe they can do a trade or something like that. Uh, they've split as well internally. Um, uh, Abu Bakr Shakao is, you know, a complete lunatic. Um, so <clears throat> that's the one that I came out thinking. And, and Al-Shabaab, I feel like they are spreading around. They're, they're weakened, but they are definitely not out. Um, so unfortunately, I feel like all these groups are are here for the foreseeable future. They're not going away anytime soon, and there might be an ISIS, son of ISIS 2.0 type thing that you're talking about in five years. Um, I definitely see that happening. How strong they are, it's hard to say. I, you know, can't look into a, a crystal ball, and I don't, I can't read Trump's crazy brain either, and I don't know what his plans are, but that's what worries me quite a bit about what, um, what does America do next? They are kind of leading the coalition in Iraq right now. Yeah, I mean, so what will America do next? I mean, I mean there's, there's basically two choices. One is, um, you know, continuity, because, you know, Trump said that he was going to bomb the four-letter word out of ISIS. And, I mean, the fact is, is that the United States has killed 45,000 ISIS fighters in the last two years. I mean... There's not going to be a lot left to bomb at a certain point. Uh, so, um, and there's no demand signal from the American public to send in a large force to Iraq or Syria. And, it, you know, Trump has said very um, contradictory things. I mean, he's sort of a neo-isolationist at one level, and then at the same time, he's going to, like, take the fight to the terrorists. So it's not really clear what he's going to do, I don't think. Um, my... My, my guess is, is that when he gets the briefings, he will find out that he doesn't know as much as the generals do about ISIS and that there's actually quite an elaborate plan and that it's been quite carefully thought out both politically and militarily. Uh, so the likely outcome, and Michael Flynn may well be his national security advisor, spent a long time in Iraq running intelligence operations for Joint Special Operations Command. The likely outcome is that we'll be doing something not dissimilar in the future. However... You know, he's obviously an unpredictable person. Yeah, I, I, you know, his original, one of the things he said during the campaign was we should um, let the um, countries in the region do the work and work with them and kind of extract ourselves to a yeah. certain extent and, and be less of an interventionist um, country, which I don't think would necessarily be such a bad thing, except we're leaving it in complete chaos. Well, that's, that's true. And also, look, I mean, 
It's just all a black and white thing, right? So, I mean, intervention has costs and doing nothing has costs. I mean, look at Syria. It's the worst, as you say in the film, it's the worst humanitarian crisis since World War II. So, but the Obama administration did very little. Um, and of course, if, we, if it had done more, there would have been second and third order effects. And so, you know, when you become president, you realize that it's not as simple as saying, you know, we're going to do nothing or we're going to do something. I mean, it, it, it both come with costs. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing is that the Afghans, I think, kind of want us to stay at this point in general, not the Taliban. The Iraqis actually sort of want us to stay. I mean, so it's not, it's a much more, it's not black and white at all in terms of this question of whether we intervene or not. It sort of depends on the circumstances and depends, you know, obviously on the publics and uh, you know, these, what the countries want. Uh, um, and this might be a, a controversial question, but, you know, when I talk to my, you know, people who have become friends in Iraq who we made documentaries with before, they said we, there, there was never an issue of Sunni versus Shia. We were just Iraqi, and they had a lot of Iraqi pride, and there was that nationalism that was one thing that Saddam Hussein actually brought. And, you know, is there an argument to be made for, you know, Iraq needs a, a, a dictator who's going to rule the place with an iron fist? And without it, it's, it's just, you know, falling apart on ethnic fault lines. Yeah. I think we can blame the British for some of this. Okay, so, um, will we go to questions? If you have a question, just raise your hand and identify yourself. Hard for me to see if there are questions because these lights are very blind, uh, very strong. Hi, uh, thank you. Um, so I apologize, I haven't seen the, the Al-Qaeda episode, but I'd be interested to hear whether or not you think Al-Qaeda has learned a lesson from ISIS, in particular in light of uh, Osama bin Laden's kind of broader strategy of um, getting the United States entwined in smaller but more costly uh, conflicts all over the world, and given ISIS's kind of popularity and, and ability to recruit and raise money. Um, <clears throat> I mean, the one time that Al-Qaeda did not come off as completely confident when I interviewed them was when I did ask them about ISIS and, you know, what they thought, you know, would they work together one day or are they going to continue to, you know, have, have a, a split between them? Um, and they, there seemed to be a, a, some form of an inferiority complex that they, they have. Um, but, you know, I, I don't... Um, <clears throat> and I, I also think because they have, you know, weakened and are now coming back, they have had a shift in strategy and that's what they wanted to get out is that we are not as brutal. We're not going to be all about killing Shia and we're going to try and uh, fill a vacuum and, and play a role that the government is not playing. So it's a very, very different strategy and they seem kind of okay with that. Uh, I do think that they are intimidated by ISIS's ability to market themselves um, and, and on that level. Uh, but they seem like very, very different entities. Uh, thank you very much. The documentary is largely uh, backwards looking um, and gives a, a great history. I'm wondering uh, if you think that there's path dependency, and uh, if the where we should go in the future, if the wisdom of withdrawing is different than the wisdom of 
intervening or disbanding the army or some of these previous choices we've made? Sorry, what was the first part of the question? Just sort of a comment. The first part of the question is, is just, uh, is there path dependency that has happened in terms of the US policy? So, so given that we've made some bad choices, uh, if you think that, uh, is there path dependency in terms of what do we do in the future? In terms of should we withdraw? Uh, should, what should be done? Is, is it different than sort of the original choices that we made? Well, I, I think, I definitely think that, you know, as we pointed out, going into Iraq and making a case based on you know, these supposed weapons of mass destruction that did not exist there. Uh, it's, it's shocking to me how uh, little that's actually talked about. Um, and if you look at the impact that has happened because of that invasion and the largest humanitarian crisis, it's all interconnected. Um, and, and so I just, you know, I don't know I, what, you know, how interventionist America should be, how much of a you know, global police man America should be moving forward. Uh, I feel like we need to tread very, very carefully. Uh, and I'm, I'm not an expert on that, but I just, I, I get, um, you know, it's just, it's, it's uh, very depressing and, and um, tragic what has really happened um, based on the Iraq invasion and the domino effect that's come as a result of it. And that has created that kind of pain and anger, the sense of injustice over there. And it makes it so easy for these groups to recruit. Peter, I don't know if you want to chime in on that one. I mean, it's complicated. I don't know. <laughs> We're in South Korea. 17,000 American soldiers are in South Korea more than half a decade after the end of the, of the Korean War. So, you know, American intervention isn't sort of automatically a bad thing uh, at all. Um, and often it's actually been a good thing. Uh, it's a question of how you execute it, when you execute it, how you execute it. Um, so this is, you know, this is what President Trump is going to have to think about um, because, it, you know, the campaign slogans are... Well, one thing, but one of the first decisions he's going to have to make is, are we going to zero out American troop presence in Afghanistan, as was President Obama's plan, which luckily, you know, I think that would be a catastrophe, catastrophe for Afghanistan, wouldn't necessarily be good for Pakistan, probably wouldn't be good for American national interests, uh, because we've sort of run a controlled experiment of what this looks like, which is the withdrawal in Iraq in 2011, which, um, you know, Certainly didn't didn't hurt ISIS, um, so it's not a very satisfactory answer. But um, it is it is an answer. Question over here. Uh, could you shift a little bit and talk? I'm Steve Gordon from Microsoft Research. Uh, could you shift and talk a little bit about the digital platforms and the campaigns that are recruiting? Through digital media, and if if we're doing enough in that space to combat that or counter that, or do they seem to have enough recruits without that? Maybe comment a little bit about that. 
That's a that's a really good question, um, and I don't, you know, I think they've the the a lot of the foreign fighters have been these disaffected kids on the margins who are just consuming these propaganda videos online, um, and you know, I don't know if there's a way to control that or, you know, we're getting into this question of do we censor the internet or not. Uh, and I feel like the platforms have to, um, you know, manage, manage that to the, the best of their ability. Probably not is the, the short version. We're not doing enough. Uh, but I honestly don't know enough about it. All I know is that they are, and I know the, the State Department has actively over the last few years been making an effort to create content that can live online that will combat that kind of this recruitment, these videos, these propaganda videos that are being consumed, that these, you know, uh, that makes looking, uh, joining ISIS look like a really cool thing to do, you know? Uh, and they're trying, they feel like that's a great way to, or that, that is one way to fight it. Um, and there's been a lot of, you know, kind of Muslim outreach initiatives by the State Department to young Muslim filmmakers all over the world saying, let's fight it with, by making content. And I think that's an interesting idea. I don't know how effective it's gonna be, but I think it's worth a try. Hi, um, I guess in the past week, I've felt like we're at sort of an inflection point in terms of soul searching within the media. Um, you know, you see the, the letter that came from the New York Times editors this week saying, we may have fucked up, but we, you know, um, at the same time, even before that, I felt like with a lot of these places, all the places you just visited, there's so little media presence in all of those locations, yet this is where all of these heart-wrenching, just masses of human tragedy are happening. All of this is coming together right now and I just feel like we're at sort of this inflection point when it comes to everything happening in this world and a lack of real coverage from those places and now we're looking at what we're looking at in the US which is, you know, the Atlantic today said uh, the media is woefully unprepared to confront what they're about to face with the Trump presidency and the mouthpiece they have with the federal government and creating their own reality. So. I don't know what my question is so much as just sharing what my anxiety level is with all those things. And just curious to hear both your perspectives given that reality. And coming from where you were just at and where you were just at, that these places, there's not, there's not any reporting coming out of there. And we have to get this sort of feedback. So again, just sharing my level of anxiety and, and wondering where your anxiety is. <laughs> yeah, I think it depends where you go. Look, I mean, the coverage of Iraq is actually very good. I mean, the Washington Post, Loveday Morris is doing amazing reporting. Uh, Arwa Damon of CNN is doing amazing reporting. Um, you know, there's actually some very good coverage now of what's going on in Iraq. Uh, there isn't very good coverage in Syria because it's too dangerous. I mean, look, I mean, why would you... I mean, there's only one way to cover the conflict and keep your head on your shoulders and to go in on the regime side. Um, so it's just, it's too dangerous. And, and Afghanistan is... Americans don't care. I mean, you know, I write about Afghanistan. No one, I mean, it's our collective fault. If I, when I write about Afghanistan, I can tell how many people read it. No one cares. 
Um, and uh, so it's, a it's become a lot more dangerous. I mean, for a Westerner now in Kabul, which used to be my wife and I met in Afghanistan, I mean, 2007, it was actually kind of a fun place to be. Uh, it is not a fun place to be now. So I agree, I think your general point is correct. It just sort of depends where you are. But part of it is not that the media just abandoned its responsibilities. Part of it is there's no demand signal from the American public, which is not a complete, you know, it's not a sufficient excuse. But also that these conflicts are very expensive and very dangerous in many cases. I mean, Somalia, I mean, it's slightly better than it was a few years back. I haven't been, but uh, when, I mean, it was, it's a very dangerous place. It got calm when I was there, and right. maybe a month after we left, Shabab was creeping back in and it was going south again. So it's going up and down. But I mean, you know, your overall point is, is, is a reasonable one. It's just that I think that it's sort of a matter of looking at the details. And um, the fact is that journalism as an enterprise, that the, the economic model for it, except for places like Vice, is just basically, it's not a, there's no business in history that survived by giving away what it does, which is basically what the, so, <laughs> this, it's not a sustainable it's model. It's not really a sustainable forever. model. I mean, it's great that Vice is able to do this enterprising reporting and actually, I presume, make money out of it. Yeah, we have, um, we have our ways. <laughs> there's, a, there's a method to the madness. Um, but, you know, we, we, again, I, I agree with everything that you said uh, and what, what Peter said as well. Uh, for us, we kind of came late to the party in a way. We... Um, came out of from you know producing a a culture lifestyle magazine and then picking up cameras uh, more recently in the last ten years, uh, but we really focused on international as much as we could. It felt like the the you know the networks the news cycle uh, is this one thing and it made it easy for us to go to other places and try and tell these stories. We're like okay, well that's you know, we'll let them do their thing. And now more than ever, we need to put, uh, we have a responsibility to, to, to uh, invest as much as we can, work as hard as we can, and tell as many of these stories as we can, and, and to, to make the government, make people accountable for, for what's to come. In the, I mean, because it's, it's, it's pretty nuts what's going on right now. Um, so yeah, it is uh, a time for for soul searching, and you know, we were uh, vices is by no means. Um, uh, you know, we made our fair share of mistakes as well, and but we're learning, and and we're we're trying to be um, just nonpartisan and and. And chase all the other stories. I mean, actually, when the Al Qaeda episode came out, I went on MSNBC uh, and they interviewed me. And they, it was in the middle of you know, three weeks before the the election, and they all looked kind of stunned, like just like all Trump all day every day. And they were grateful to talk about terrorism <laughs> and Al Qaeda for five minutes. And they literally said, "I I kind of forgot that this was going on." <laughs> you know, in, in the rest of the world, that there are these wars going on in, in the rest of the world. Um, so, um, and, and to your point, Peter, Arwa Damon's reporting, the, the Mosul coverage has been interesting, but we had a team there as well, and it was a bit of a media circus, like everyone all chasing it again, and we were part of that, that cycle as well. Um, but what she 
her story was able to cut through the lunacy of the elections a week beforehand, and it was it was amazing reporting. Well, thanks to you, Sarush, for amazing reporting and to, you, uh, for showing the film today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this New America NYC podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.